Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. We're here once again at the garage with legendary race car driver John Fitch. John is the man who really put the, the Corvette on the map as a race car in America. So how did you get hooked up with Corvette? How did that, how did that start? Oh, well, let's see now. I read in the paper that the Corvette was going to be introduced in New York City, and I made a point of being there. Now, were you disappointed when you saw the Corvette? It was a six-cylinder oh. with a two-speed automatic. Oh, were you, were you oh, a little disappointed at first? It was a miserable car. <laughs> Absolutely miserable. Horrible car. No wonder the Thunderbird outsold it right. to be held. Right. But Ed Cole designed this brilliant small V8 right. and dropped it in this car. And that's a story in itself because that was the only decent part the car had. Right, right. It was a shortened two-door sedan, Chevrolet, that's all it was, right. with a fiberglass body. Ed Cole, who was a general manager of Chevrolet, mm-hmm. asked Briggs Cunningham, who was a leader, uh, team owner, great experience, six times at Le Mans and so on, asked him to come to Detroit to discuss who he should get to run a team and organize a team for Corvette. And Briggs recommended me. And of course, you are also responsible. When I was a kid, one of my favorite cars was the, the Fitch Corvair. Really? Tell us about that. It was a Corvair Sprint. Right. Yes. Well, uh, I modified the Corvair to make a sports car out right. of a commuter car. And I just changed the suspension. I changed the steering ratio. Right. I changed the brake capabilities. and. Uh, did styling things too. Right. It was almost like an American Porsche. That was the idea. Yeah, because exactly. I remember reading the road tests of the period, and people loved the car. Yes, they did. Uh, crazy about it. You also involved in safety in racing too. You oh, you brought yeah. a lot of safety innovations well, to the game. Well, good night. Uh, I had the greatest stimulus for doing something about it because my co-driver on the Mercedes team, Pierre Levesque, a Frenchman crash, no fault of his own, right. in the 55 Le Mans, 85 spectators were killed. I remember that. 85. Has anybody ever. seen that uh, footage where the car literally left, uh, did it go up on the car in front of it? Is that yes, what it, was? it, it did. It literally yeah. launched yeah. the car into yeah. the crowd. Yeah, yeah. 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 But you, didn't you help introduce the safety barriers and some of the other things as well? Oh, right? yeah. yeah. As yeah. a result of that experience, I struggled with this. There was no way of stopping an out-of-control car without injuring the occupants. And I finally, it's occurred to me that Newton's laws of conservation of momentum, when you accelerate a mass, 
by another mass, it decelerates the impacting mass. And I, I figured it out uh, on paper, and my golly, it looks as though it worked. And I couldn't get GM and people uh, in the industry interested. I had to do it myself. So I got some junk cars, and I got some liquor crates from the local liquor store. Right. They're very strong vertically. Right. And did you get rid of the liquor first before you <laughs> Oh, yeah, I got rid of that. <laughs> and uh, ordered sandbags from right. the local sand gravel company. And I set up a row of these and ran into this row of masses of sand, and it worked to the pound, and right. to the second. Right. It was incredible. Walter Cronkite was a racer friend. That's right, Walter mine, Cronkite was a driver. And he was the spokesman for Union Carbide. And through him, I talked to some of their engineers. And by golly, Union Carbide got behind it. Oh, they built wonderful. the plastic barrels. I couldn't do that. Right, no. right. $50,000 for a mold. Right. They did all this on the cuff. And I paid them later. Wow. It was wonderful. Because in your day, the guys, it was mostly just shirt sleeves, not even seat belts, right, in the early days? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you just sort of, and drivers right. would yeah. get killed three or four, even more a season, correct? Oh, it was um, really terribly dangerous. I have to wonder what I'm being saved for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Better hurry. <laughs> Were you ever seriously injured? No. This is Wayne Carini from Chasing Classic Cars, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, listeners, welcome. You're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers in Google, tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Coldwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GolfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, check out NostalgicRadioAndCars.com. Good evening, Matt. How are you? Good evening, Robert. How about yourself? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's uh, always good to be sitting in the uh, studio. And I say this all the time. Any day on this side of the turf is a good day no matter what. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we've had some pretty nice weather lately, I might add. Yes, we have, but it's supposed to get cold again by the end of the week. Can Mother Nature make up her mind? It's Florida. Yeah, it's true. That's right. very true. That's just, uh, you know, I've been here 50 years now, something like that. Yeah. It hasn't changed. I, the only thing I can tell you is because I was younger back in the day, yeah. I might have tolerated it more. Today, these days, yeah. I don't particularly care for it. You know, I mean, I... You know, I can deal with the cold because I'm from out west anyway. Yep. It's no big deal. Same thing, with, same thing with me being a northern boy. <coughs> the difference is, is, and I so we say this all the time, all us westerners say this, it's a dry heat while it's also a dry cold. Yeah, it's true. It doesn't, the, the dampness doesn't go through you like it does here. Here, it just like goes right through you. You feel it in your bones and yep. it's like, damn. Yep. In fact, Dave was just telling me a few minutes ago that he was skiing out in Utah. I should have asked him that because he's from Florida. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're out there, I mean, I mean, you ski up and I skied in the Carolinas before. It was terrible up there. I mean, it was just damp and nasty, you know, yeah. and it's slushy. Out west, we got nice, dry, powdery snow, you know, and it's pretty, pretty cool. Anyway, we're not here to talk about skiing yet. 
<coughs> excuse me. No, that's not the point of this show, is it? No, no, no. We're an automotive show. And, uh, and occasionally we do music. And we have some musical guests lined up for us here in, in the next couple of weeks. But anyway, so uh, if you want to find out what's going on, definitely check out flacarshows.com. They will steer you. Get that? Steer you. That's a pun intended. An intended pun. Alan, you're going to call in. I know you are because he's yeah, he's got this. He, his wit is actually better than mine. But anyway, so uh, find out where all the car shows are. You uh, steer yourself to FLA car shows. Talking about. Now, what's coming up in the next couple of weeks? Well, our good friends at Fastlane Travel. Obviously, if you want to go to Deutschland and to the, und to the uh, Porsche factory, 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 fabric, as we would say in German, Deutsch, yeah. Wir müssen Deutsch reden auf diesem Radioprogramm, weil wir sind uh, deutsche Abstammige, 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 something like that. Anyway, um, so, but uh, coming in the end of the month here, I think it's on the 1st, we will be at the Porsche Works Reunion in Amelia Island, at Amelia Island, at the Porsche Works Reunion. So I'll be there with my rest of my team from Fastlane Travel, and we'll be uh, talking about Porsches and driving tours to Germany, to Deutschland. We're also going to be doing one to the Carolinas in the fall, and it's going to be called our Moonshine Festival trip, and we'll be going to uh, Lake Lanier, and then to Dawsonville, and then to the Atlanta Motorsports Park, which is a private racetrack, where we'll probably get a little bit of track time. And then we're going to be going up to the um, Brass, I can't remember the thing name, but it's in Blairsville, North Carolina, and uh, it's a really nice hotel. And from there, we're going to be driving out to the Tail of the Dragon and some of those other really cool roads. But the roads outside of the tail are a lot more fun. Anyway, and we'll probably not get too crazy like I did the last time I was up there because certainly don't want to lose my driver's license. Or nor do I want to run into anybody, nor do I want to wreck my car. But anyway, it's a really cool gathering, and there's probably about uh, 25, 30 people along with us. So check out FLAT or uh, FastLaneTravel.com, and you can find out about all our trips that we're taking to Deutschland and to the Carolinas, and then maybe some other stuff we're working on. Also, our, another big event that's going on, and I will be blowing out of Works Reunion right afterwards, heading to Miami, because I'm going to go down there and hang out with our friends at RM, and uh, the new... Moda Miami event down in Coral Gables at the uh, JW Marriott. Um, should be pretty pretty exciting because this is you know this is Miami and there's you know Miami's come on has changed quite a bit since the old days and it's still very Art Deco but it's very contemporary. Should be a lot of fun. Um, this is a new event. We had Rob Myers on a show a couple of weeks ago, three four weeks ago, and we were talking a little bit about it. So I'm looking forward to that. And of course, RM's got some of the finest cars going through the auction that you've ever seen. Plus, this is a very, very special car show, car event at uh, the Moto Miami. And then this weekend, Saturday, in the evening, over in Tampa, I guess it's down by the waterfront there, you know, where Amelie Theater is and all that area. But there's this event. I just found out about it a couple of weeks ago because a friend of mine told me about it. It's called the Armature. And uh, Peter from Fastlane Travel is going to be bringing his 356 over there. So I'm just going to go hang out probably bring my buddy Hank and maybe a couple other guys we're just going to come walk around see what it's like check out the area I know Mike's going to be there our good friend Mike he's got a, also has a Porsche and uh, yeah it'll be a lot of muscle cars there too but it's mostly Europeans exotics I mean look at some of the pictures if you google it armature armature I think that's right something like that dot com whatever uh, it's called the river river show river car show river something because it's kind of on the river there I know I know I know Everybody complains. How come you can't memorize names? Well, I don't know. I guess because my mind goes faster than my, my thinking sometimes, and I can't get it out fast enough. 
Well, that, that and you said you've been in Florida 50 years. Maybe the Florida sun's getting to you finally. I, you know what? There's a very good possibility that I have a baked brain. Which is, I'm starting to get it, and I've only been here two years. Sun-baked brain. Yeah, same but, thing. And I'm outdoors a lot, so, you know, you would think that all that fresh air and breathing and inhaling, you know, fresh air, nice air would have a positive effect, but maybe I take short breaths. I don't know. I'm not getting enough oxygen to my brain. It's po- it's possible, but then again, anything's possible. And I'm not. I'm glad we don't have open lines because I'm sure there'll be a th- hundreds of people out there who make a comment about this. Right. And I don't know how this contraption here works because I'm not a techie kind of guy. So that's a good thing too. Right. In fact, every time I go home, I, I some and no no offense, but some of my friends say, "Hey, Robert, how you doing?" All stuff. So hey and hello and hi there, ho there to everybody that tunes into the show. And comments, but I'm not fast and savvy enough on the computer to respond to it. So I'll do it later afterwards. Don't worry, guys. He's not ignoring you. It's just it's hard to be able to him for him to respond and host the show at the same time. His hosting responsibilities a little more important. <laughs> well, anyway, well, what's interesting is years ago I always wanted to sit where you're sitting, really? and do the show from there. But my son Bobby goes, Dad, you're not. Uh, you're not technologically no, fast enough. I'm not quick enough to do that because you got to be able to, and you know, I still hunt and peck on a computer. I mean, if I was like that, I could yeah. probably do it quick, but I'm fine where I'm at. I'm I'm where I belong over here on this side but of the I window. Get, I got to say, I've done it from both sides. I've done it where I've just hosted and I've done it from this side of the table. It's hard to be able to do both at the same time. Well, you guys can because you're good and you're experienced at it. But for, right. s- for some of us to do it uh, here and there. Well, well even, even for young guys like me and Bobby who have done this enough times, it's still at times a little hard for us to be able to talk and try to be able to like formulate a complete thought, get your commercials set up, get your guests on the phone. It's a little hard to be able to do all that at the same time. It's doable, but it's a little harder yeah. than you think. Yeah. Well, thank you. Matt. Oh, you're welcome. You're doing okay. Now, why don't we go ahead and fire up the stereo? Let's play a little. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's go some '60s music. Let's uh, probably one of the best known psychedelic bands out of the '60s was Strawberry Alarm Clock. So we're going to play probably the most common, their most famous song. Although they have a lot of really cool songs on their. Um, but you mentioned them. This is the one that always gets talked about. This is one that gets played all the time. But there's, next time we're going to play some other stuff that they played. But this is probably more appropriate so because everybody can identify with this. So we're going to play a little Incense Peppermints, right? Is that it? Yep. Something like that. Okay, hey, you're tuning into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't touch that now. We'll be right back with our special guest for the evening. we got a really, really interesting guy coming on. Gentleman, I should say. And, uh, you know, this is Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So we're going to talk about some nostalgia this evening. And there was a clue at the very beginning of the show, which we always do. But anyway, you tune into Nostalgic Radio Cars. Don't touch that dial. I will be right back. I promise you. Yeah, girl, look at your song. 
one side is the least you can do Beatniks and politics, nothing is new A yardstick for lunatics, one point of view Concord Delegates, and you are listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. You know, that didn't sound like Ferraris. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we had. I didn't get enough time to change uh, it out. All right, all right. You know, talk about somebody who had a uh, radio announcer's voice. It certainly was Bill Warner. So, and of course, he's still around and he's enjoying his uh, free time now. But anyway, hey, it's back to Nostalgic Green Cars. Time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman is. Uh, he was personal friends with John Fish. We played a little clip earlier this day. And he's also in charge of the. Uh, he's kind of like an official. Cunningham historian. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening, Larry Berman. Larry, how are you? Very good, sir. Yourself? Hanging in there. Hanging in there. I'm doing okay. So, uh, I don't know if you caught the beginning of the show, but I played a little clip, an excerpt from uh, when Jay Leno did an interview with uh, John Fitch a number of years ago. And I know you mentioned you were pretty good friends with him since you're all up in the New England area there. So, uh, let's talk about uh, Mr. Fitch for a little bit before we jump over to the Cunningham uh, story. So, uh, what was John like? Uh, I would describe him as a Renaissance man. Very interesting engineering background. A gentleman who held, I believe, something like 14 or 15 U.S. patents on a variety of, of items. And just a very interesting man to listen to. His stories about being a P-51 Mustang a uh, fighter pilot in World War II, a POW, um, the first Amer- the first, I believe, the only American ever to drive for the Mercedes factory team. Uh, he, he was quite an interesting gentleman. Interesting, interesting. Now, when you said he was flew P-51, did he fly on the European or the Japanese theater? Oh, European. He was shot down uh, strafing... Uh, supply trains uh, over Germany. Oh, really? Interesting. So how long was he a POW for? Uh, I believe February to May. He was in the same POW camp as Patton's uh, son-in-law, and they were the first among the first to be liberated. Oh, well, it helps to have friends in high places, right? <laughs> I would think so in this case. <laughs> Okay, um, when you so, how, what was your relationship like with with uh, John? I mean, you did you guys uh, just kind of pal around? Did you hang out at racetracks? Uh, did you ever um, do any historical events together or uh, motorsports events together? Uh, yeah, yes, to probably all of the above. Okay, uh, I first got involved with him as I was. Doing some research into a driver by the name of Sherwood Johnston, 
uh, who drove an XK120, and then, a mo- then they modified the car. And a friend of mine has owned that car since 1957. And I was doing the history on it, and that took me to Cunningham and in researching some about Briggs Cunningham, I saw that John Fitch was one of his most prolific drivers. And so I met John uh, many years ago at Lime Rock because he lived one mile from the track. And I became his motorsport historian doing research on his background, his archivist, and helping keep his office in some semblance of order, uh, went to many events with him. Uh, one special one was Sebring for the 50th anniversary. And he was invited by Mercedes and brought me along as his helper. And we enjoyed a great uh, long weekend at that event. Interesting, interesting. Now, what was his connection with... Now, he... He, I guess he has the distinction of being one of the first drivers piloting a Corvette, and that was what, around 57, 58, somewhere around in there? Uh, yes, and he got uh, connected with Zora Dantov, who was obviously trying to get Corvette uh, to be a race car, and it really wasn't at that time. Uh, it wasn't prepared. The wheels weren't strong enough to... The engines weren't uh, large enough, but uh, they became very good working friends over a period of two or three years. I'm going to take a wild stab at this. So I'm going to say that Fitch and Zora probably became friends in the early 50s because they were both road racing. And at one point, I think Fitch drove Porsche and Zora also drove Porsche. So was there a connection there? Uh, I don't recall Fitch driving the Porsche. Okay. Uh, well, not, not that not, I recall. I, I could look at his race history, but it doesn't uh, ring a bell with me. Okay. Well, it may not have been like a team driver. It may have been an independent, you know, because he was obviously, like you said, he was a team driver for Mercedes. And, uh, and of course, the horrific 1955 crash where his teammate was killed. Uh, he, he, well, it, by luck. He would have been in the car if he had had the first uh, part of the, uh, the race. But I believe they drew straws, and his co-driver, Pierre Bouillon-Levay, whichever name he was using at the time, his real name or his race name, uh, was in the car when the car went off the road, went over the back of the... Um, Austin Healy. Austin Healy launched into the crowd and created the disaster, and... Pitch was an eyewitness from the uh, pits across the track. Was Now, Sterling Moss was racing in that race. Was he driving Mercedes also, or was he driving Jaguar? Uh, that I don't recall. Okay, I wasn't... I but, inter- but the 19... Excuse me, the 1955 tragic race is what started John Fitch on his lifelong journey to deal with uh, safety, race safety, automotive safety. I don't know if you're aware, but he created and patented the Fitch inertial barriers. Those were the yellow sand barrels on the highway that people see all over, and it's mm-hmm. been credited with saving something like 
in excess of 25,000 lives worldwide. Uh, and he did his testing at Lime Rock, and he told me one day that he used Newton's laws of physics, and he figured out that if you took a plastic cylinder and you separated the cylinder into three parts, in other words, you inserted two shells in the cylinder, you had the bottom empty, the middle section half filled with sand, and the top with sand, if a vehicle hit the cylinder, it would nose down. If you had the reverse um, situation in sand, sand at the bottom half and air at the top, it would create a launch pad. Interesting. And he tested using jalopies, old beat-up cars, on the Lime Rock track. Is Lime Rock privately owned, or who, who who's in charge yes. of Lime Rock? It is? No, it, it, it is. And John was the first manager, general manager of the track, and he helped design it, I think, it when it opened in 1957. Okay. Now, we had Sam Posey on here many, many years ago, a number of times. Well, he, lived, he lives in the area. Yeah, he's, he's a, a wonderful driver and a very classy guy. I remember being at an event that he and his wife sponsored at their beautiful home, uh, I think, my guess is Sharon, Connecticut. I mean, it's very close to Lime Rock. Yeah. Well, another guy that lives in Sharon, Connecticut is uh, Rick Kopeck. Rick Kopeck was uh, the guy that was responsible for SAC, Shelby American Automobile Club. So mm-hmm. I would go up to Lime Rock every once in a while. Probably was there in 96 and 2000, I think, for the for Shelby meets. So it was a lot of fun. 97, maybe. 96. Yeah, something like that. Oh, great track. John uh, gave me a tip one day when I was – I had him uh, driving one of my XK120 Roadsters, and he explained that the track was so short at a mile and a half that – once you got the car into third gear, you didn't take it out until you cro- came around, crossed the finish, start finish line, and then you break down to go into the 90-degree big bend. This theory was very simple. If you kept on shifting, you were wasting a lot of time and energy. Oh, so he actually designed the Lime Rock road course? He was part of the original design team. Okay, so he designed it from a driver's perspective. No, prob- probably, and he only lived one mile. He could walk to the track from his <laughs> home on Salmon Kill Road. Interesting. All right, now you mentioned Cunningham, and that's kind of our, our, our big theme tonight because um, you're kind of like the Cunningham historian. So give us uh, the, beginning back, the beginning story of of uh, Mr. Cunningham and uh, how his his passion for racing um, kind of started. Well, unfortunately, I never met him. I met his son, Briggs III. Uh, I met his daughter, um, Lucy. They're both gone. I met the third sibling, the youngest, uh, Seth Lynn or Lynn. Uh, and I know a number of members of your family, but unfortunately, I just... Never know, and I also met and had lunch with his first wife, uh, also Lucy Cunningham. Very interesting family. 
Briggs himself never had a work a day in his life, but he accomplished a great deal. Uh, a lot of people remember him for the 1959 America's Cup race that he won with his yacht, the Columbia, which is a magnificent uh, antique sailing yacht. I've been on it, and it's in original condition today, owned by a gentleman from Boston who had it completely refurbished. Uh, but Briggs was racing with his friends, the Colliers, in Connecticut on uh, various private estates. They would race sports cars in the 1930s. And Briggs went to Yale, and he had to promise his mother that he wouldn't race. And after she was gone, he, he was at it again. What was his background? What was his? I mean, he. What was the family? What was their um, oh. source of wealth? I should say. Uh, his father, <coughs> family was originally from Cincinnati, uh-huh. and then they moved to Connecticut. His father was a banker, and as I recall the story, uh, his father invested and a couple of gentlemen who uh, created some soap that floated. And their names were uh, Proctor and Gamble. (laughs) And I understand that the family still owns original Proctor and Gamble stock probably 100 years after the formation of the company. Very interesting, very interesting. So uh, he didn't really have to work. Uh, He was a member of the Civil Air Patrol during the Second World War and patrolled the East Coast in a plane that he owned. Um, he got into racing. Uh, well, he, he got to Le Mans in 1950 with two Cadillacs. One was a regular, I think a 360 sedan that they modified. And then there was Le Monster, as the French uh, referred to the modified car, uh, which was built by, I believe, craftsmen at Grumman Engineering in their spare time at night after work. Was that the boxy one, the boxy-looking thing, yeah. low profile? Oh, okay. Yes, a boxy car, and they would test that car on the Long Island uh, Expressway at night. Oh, interesting. Before they took it to France. Uh, and his dream, as I understood it, was to win Le Mans, and he tried 16 times, to win it with an American car, an American engine, and an American driver. And he came close with Corvette number 3 in 60, made first in class, as I recall. Interesting, interesting. So now tell us about, <coughs> tell us about some of the Cunningham cars and how that came to be. Uh, he, um, you know, he wanted an American car for this purpose, so they started out with Cadillacs, mm-hmm. and he couldn't make a deal with General Motors and Cadillac for engines, so he approached one of his Yale classmates, whose father at the time was the head of Chrysler, and he was able to get Chrysler Hemi engines, which turned out to be better because they were lighter and stronger engines. Uh, Cadillac engines, and they, he started, uh, I think it was 51 or 2, building the C2R car, 
I built four of those, tubular chassis, uh, Hemi engine. Uh, three of those cars exist today. 51, number 5104 was damaged in a race accident in a 53, I believe. It was returned to the factory, and it was traded in for one of the five Cunningham C3 convertibles. How many? It took a, a, it, Go ahead. Excuse me. It took us three years. Uh, Tom Cotter, who's a very well-known author, and Chuck Schoendorf, who owns three of the original 25 Cunningham C3 cars, and he took six years building a replica, a dead-on replica of the C4RK uh, racing coupe. Do the numbers like C4RK, do they have a uh, significance? C, obviously, well, for Cunningham, right? R would be race. Uh, race. Four would be... Uh, the, R, the RK or the K would probably, by this I'm not positive, but I believe would have to do with the cam back, you know, the tail of okay. the car, which was cut right. off cam, spelled, I believe it was K-A-M-M. Right. So that that's very possible. Um, the the three cars are all in private hands. I was I'm sorry. The C two R cars are in private hands. The next version were uh, <coughs> the C four Rs. There are two of them. One is at Collier Res Institute in Naples. The other one is at Simeon Museum in Philadelphia. And the engines were switched at some t- point in time, and you know they each have the reverse the other's engine, which I thought was kind of interesting. But they just never got switched back. <coughs> now these cars all raced. I'm going to presume Daytona, Sebring, and Le Mans, and other race tracks around the United States. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, and and if people are really interested in in the history, they could go to www.briggscunningham.com, which has been my hobby website for the last sixteen or seventeen years, and there is a massive amount of detail available, including the full race history for the Cunningham team with over eight hundred and. 20 or 830 individual race entries. Wow. Very and all of the, car, the race cars, which number probably about 160 plus or minus. I can't remember all of the details because there's so many. Well, now, the, when you're talking about 100 and some odd cars, are you talking about actual Cunningham cars that he built, or are you talking about no. other cars that he raced, for example, like the, the, the 1960 Corvettes 1, 2, and 3? Yeah, in total, I okay. would, uh, I'm referring to the team, okay. Cunningham team, over a period of uh, years from '50 to I believe '66 or so. Okay, what got you interested in doing research on Briggs Cunningham and his uh, racing career and his racing cars? Well, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, it started with um, John Sherwood Johnston. Okay. From there, it got, I saw that he was driving for Cunningham. It led me to Fitch. I saw he was driving a lot for Cunningham. 
Uh, um, then there was Randy, uh, uh, what's his name? There's a, an excellent driver. The main driver was from North Jersey. He was a Jaguar driver originally, and then he started racing for Cunningham, and escaped, his name escapes me for a moment. Okay. Um, so a lot of these cars, and I, and, and I don't generally, I mean, <clears throat> Your background is you're basically an insurance adjuster, correct? That's what your background is? Yes, we represent property owners, property <coughs> managers. Uh, we do, do not work for insurance companies. We deal with hurricanes, fires, floods, other disasters. Our job, as somebody once said, was to try to keep the insurance companies honest, which is a full-time job. <laughs> I can 100% relate to that because I do diminished value total loss valuations, and I'm forever in the trenches for my clients because, like you, I don't work for insurance companies. I work for the people, and uh, exactly. it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. It really is. No, it's a constant battle. Let me ask it's you. It's what keeps us in business. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, well, now when you talk about you know the the Mother Nature style damages, do you get in automotive stuff, or is it mostly real uh, improvements no, like real no. property, real estate, and things like that, and houses and buildings? Right. Yeah. Pro- property only. Okay. No, no vehicles. Rare, right. Rarely boats. Occasionally, if the the large expensive yacht that was destroyed, but that's rare. Well, what happens if vehicles are in the in the mix? Let's say their house gets destroyed and there's four or five cars in there, like Cunningham's maybe or something like that. <laughs> that. That might get my interest. That might get your interest. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> well, so so if an automobile's in there in in the mix in the house when it gets damaged, you just turn that over to somebody else. Is that the way that works? Uh, typically. Okay. Cool. So now the Cunningham website and that you have is it is it like an ever-evolving thing are you constantly gathering new information learning searching for information to build on what you have already in existence as far as the history of the cunningham yes sir in fact it's been fascinating there's information that's still coming to light after all these years from the early 50s and occasionally we get information sent by people from all over the world. I remember being in contact with a gentleman from Brazil at one point several years ago. We've been sent photos from all over. So it, it's really amazing to see the, the breadth of the, uh, the material that, that's out there, the people that we get, get connected to. I just saw a photo of one of the um, 1960 Le Mans Corvettes that I'd never seen before, and I must have 3,000 images uh, in the smug mug section of my website. I never saw this one particular photo, uh, which was sent to me last week. (coughs) Which brings us to the number one Le Mans car that was actually squirreled away here in St. Petersburg, Florida, for years and years and years. Yes, sir. So I'll just set that stage for that for a second. There was a gentleman by the name of, and I can get, so I can mention his name because it's referenced in your, uh, in your, on your website, correct? Yes. Okay. So Judge Carr, uh, who was previously an attorney in St. Petersburg, ultimately a judge, had a collection of cars. Now, as a child, I used to, I was going to say child, as a teenager when I was running around with cars and stuff like that, I kind of became friends with with Judge Carr. 
And ultimately, when I got in the salvage yard business, he would stop in our shop all the time. And I would he invited me down to his shop. Well, when I went down to his shop, it was full of stuff. I mean, just anything. I could have been an old antique barber chair. It could have been antique gas pumps, bicycles, cars, motorcycles, just all kinds of stuff. And a couple of cars in particular were he had a couple of Porsches in there, 911s. He had a BMW Isetta. I think he had more than one. Countless bicycles hanging from everywhere. It was an old building. It was down there by the police station. One car in particular, which is the one we're talking about, was a early 60s Corvette. Now, this the story goes back then, and I used to look at the car, and I thought, well, it'd be kind of cool, because I had a 57 Thunderbird at the time, so I thought, well, it'd be kind of cool to have a early Corvette. Now, the car was modified, and it looked like a 56 or 57 Corvette. It didn't have a twin headlight setup on it. It had a single headlight setup, and the back end was modified. According to Judge Carr, this was a, some sort of custom show car. Well, there was a guy around the corner by the name of McNally who was from California who actually worked on, I think, the original El Oro or whatever it was called, which was another modified car back in the day. Got destroyed in a fire and then, then rebuilt and recreated. And uh, so I, I asked him about it, and he says, nope, car doesn't ring a bell. Nobody knew anything about the car. But I would actually go down there and hang out with Judge Carr. I'd sit in the car, and I would clown around and stuff. Never wanted to sell the car. Unfortunately, at some point in time, he passed away. And when he did, all these cars came up for auction. He had Lincolns, Corvairs, he had Mercury Capris, he had Volkswagens, he had just all kinds of stuff. And just Ramblers, you name it, it was all a very eclectic collection of vehicles. As it turned out, when the car, if I have the story correct, well, why don't I let you take it from there? Because then some, the, when the car came up for auction, the well, owner... Let's take a step backwards. Okay. All right, let's, let's go back a step. In 04, I had a conversation with uh, Chip Miller, who at the time owned, I believe, half of the events at Carlisle, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Chip was, I believe, in his early 50s, and he was dying of a rare blood disease. And he and I were having a conversation, and he told me that he would give me the VIN number for this Corvette number one if I promised to hold it until after he was gone. And, of course, I did. And he passed, and I put it on the website on the listing of the Cunningham race cars. And it sat there from '04 for eight years until June of 12. Now, by that point, the judge had passed, I think, he was gone in 11, maybe 10, or 2000, 2011. Uh, then the city was going to take his property by eminent domain for new police headquarters. So his son, Rick, had to clean out the collection that his father spent a lifetime amassing. One day he and his son uh, took the VIN number off of what turned out to be Corvette number one. And they did a Google search, and they did it twice. And, of course, it came to one place on the Internet, my website. Nobody else had that number. And I was approached by uh, Rick Carr, and he wanted to know what I knew about the car. I didn't tell him much at the time. And I took the info, and I immediately called Chip's son, Chip Miller's son, Lance, who was with uh, an outstanding... Corvette Restore by the name of Kevin Mackay from Long Island. They were at the Bloomington Gold Show. And when I told them 
that the number was 3535, the tail end was. And we all knew what it signified. They let out a scream, and I could probably have huh. heard them without a cell phone from Illinois to Massachusetts. They were so excited. Lance took a blank check out of his wallet, gave it to Kevin, told him to go, go and buy the car because he was fulfilling his father's promise to Kevin. And that started a bit of an odyssey. Took nine years to clear the title. Fascinating story. Fascinating story. Is that story all on your website? Uh, yes, the it's uh, in the center column. In fact, I'm looking at it right now. It says 1960 Corvette. It shows a picture before and a picture after the two-year complete restoration. Um, there are many photos. A lot of backstory to it. Um, there is a motor trend, there's a link to a motor trend, um, actually, uh, it was a one hour program, uh, about the car and we have it in pure form without the ads, but you can just watch the whole 45 minute story. Totally fascinating. Now we have a few minutes left here. So apparently at one point in time, Judge Carr had, in the early 60s, he had the other car, the number two car or three car also? No, no. Not, not that, uh, not according to his son, and I spoke with his son, Rick, uh, I think it was this past Saturday. I asked him that question, and he said, absolutely not. Uh, he only had uh, this burgundy, brown, single headlight Corvette, and the reason for the front end change, of course, was the accident during the Le Mans race when the front end was uh, crashed and uh, eventually removed from the car and replaced by an early, I believe, a C1 um, single headlight version. Okay. Now, Cunningham, for our, for our listeners, Cunningham actually had a facility in West Palm Beach, correct? That's where a lot of cars were prepped for races? Um, yes, the Corvettes weren't that I was aware of, but the other cars were built there at, uh, I believe the address is 1420 or 1402 Elizabeth Avenue in West Palm. Okay. Still there. Looks the same. Still looks the same. Okay, so now, so is it is it like on a historic registry landmark or anything like that? Not that I'm aware of. Oh, it should be. Should be. All right, no, so. It's a commercial building. I got you. So now, some of these, the the other race cars, where were they built? Were they built, like these Corvettes, were they prepared up in New England or someplace? Uh, no, the Corvettes were prepped by Alfred Momo, I believe, in his shop, um, because he worked for Cunningham and dealt with the Jaguar dealership. Uh-huh. That Cunningham Cunningham was one of the first Jaguar dealers in the United States, uh, but uh, Alfred Momo was a mechanical genius, and the deal with General Motors was a backdoor deal. Oh, uh, and they supply the uh, Cunningham bought the three cars through Don Allen Chevrolet in Manhattan. Uh, they were ordered with um, oversized fuel tanks larger brakes, uh, you know, a variety of extras. I think the cars cost 
something under three thousand dollars a piece, uh, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, they came with the loan of, I believe, five fuel-injected engines because Chevrolet General Motors wanted to test uh, the fuel engines to be used in 61, 62 model years, but they wanted them race-tested uh, to see if they could hold up. Those engines were, three of them were installed in the cars. The original engines were taken out and left uh, in the States. Uh, the three cars and the two engines were shipped to France on a um, an ocean liner as, I believe, John Fitch's luggage, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which cracked me up when I heard that story, uh, and then unloaded at La Havre in France and driven to the track, along with a lot, a lot of equipment, mechanics, mechanical shop in a trailer and all the rest of the uh, extra spare parts. Interesting, interesting. So did, how did the engines survive? Did they do? Did they meet the expectations? Uh, I never saw an after-action report. I do know that they were removed, you know, upon return to the States, they were removed by uh, Momo. Uh, I was told, but I've never seen it, there was a bill of lading signed by Momo's wife, Mary, sending the five engines back to uh, General Motors Detroit for their purposes. Then the original engines were put back in the cars. Cars were decommissioned and turned back into street cars by uh, Willie uh, or Bill Frick, uh, who was Frick Tappet Motors. And they were sold to probably unsuspecting souls. Wow. Amazing. And then one ends up here in Florida. How, how right, interesting. The number one car eventually, after its uh, body modifications, ended up in Judge Carter's warehouse and sat there for something like 35 to 37 years. Incredible story. we got a few minutes left, real quick. So I met your friend Wayne at Cars on 5th, and he had a commemorative edition 2022 Corvette. What was the, the, what's the short story on that? short story is that ultimately... 60 of those cars were bought from General Motors over a period of a couple of years uh, and modified. Uh, brakes were changed, wheels were changed, um, there was a rear air dam installed, blue stripes were put on them, the interiors were changed, uh, they are badged with a Cunningham uh, decal. Uh, so there were some modifications to make them the 60th anniversary. Um, and then I understand that there is an upgrade from that. Those first 60 have been sold. Interesting. So they were basically all 22s, or some built in 2020, some 21, 2022? Well, it, it, it was over a period of years because you're dealing, if you remember, with COVID. Oh, okay, that's they, right. Uh, you know, the factory shut down. There were all kinds of problems and delays in getting uh, uh, electronic parts. Uh, you know, I understand numerous headaches, but it finally got done. Excellent. Well, that's interesting. Um, and so was that a joint effort between uh, the Cunningham family and Chevrolet, or was that all Chevrolet's idea? 
Uh, it was not Chevrolet. It was a gentleman by the name of Antonio Pierce, who owns a company called Cunningham Automotive, uh, based in Texas. Oh, okay. And he got basically their blessing to do that. Oh, well, he, uh, I believe, he did. Okay. Standing, he did. Okay. Well, Larry, we are up against the clock. I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio Cars. If people want to find out more about Cunningham, Briggs Cunningham, the Cunningham Race Cars, Cunningham Motorsports, how do they go about doing it? Uh, very simple. www.briggsbriggscunningham.com Super. Well, Larry, thank you very much for coming on the show. I know you spend part of your time down here in Florida, some of your time up there in uh, Massachusetts, and uh, I look forward to meeting you someday. Uh, we, we'll do that, Robert. Look forward to it. Okay, very good. Thank, take care. Thank you, Bye thank on. you, thank you. Appreciate it. I want to thank my special guest, Larry Berman, with the uh, Cunningham Motorsports, a Cunningham historian. So, hey, don't forget to check us out here every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tan Talk Radio Network, where you can find out uh, about some really cool car stuff, the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports, and uh, find out where some of the music events are that are taking place. We've got some musical guests lined up. Obviously, there's car shows coming up, and uh, you can follow us. Don't forget, it's uh, still some beautiful weather out there. Car driving season, even though we can do it 365 days out of the year, even in the rain. Get out there and drive your cars. How much time we got, Matt? We got about a minute and a half to see the music. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, how, what, what would you consider better driving conditions? Driving in the rain or driving in the snow? Uh, or what's more the, fun for you, I should say? The snow, because you can power slide. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, And then if you hit something, you're just hitting white powder. You Unless know? there's a parked car right there, then it's a different story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want it was buried by the snow plow, right? Yep, I got you. Yep. Okay. Well, anyway, I want to see you guys get out there. Don't forget to, uh, if you want to follow us on some of our European driving tours, check out FastLaneTravel.com. And a uh, big shout-out to our team over there, Susie, Wendy, April, Chris, or not Chris, uh, Cindy, and, of course, Peter, the, the Treffenmeister. In the meantime, don't forget to... Uh, Keep an eye on what we're up to, and uh, check out our Facebook page, Gulfstream Motorsports, Nostalgic Waiting Cars, and hey, every once in a while you can find me as Boneyard Bob. In the meantime, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.